Has your brother locked your way to steal your kingdom? Has your cousin beat you to the treasury and stolen your crown? Have you succumbed to illness and predeceased your father, the king? Hi, I'm Veronica Fortune. Past is the podcast about those who would never rule. Please join me to hear the stories of the almost kings and queens of history. And that, my friends, was Veronica from Past Podcasts. If you like our podcast, I strongly suggest you listen to hers. I'm sure it will be just your cup of tea. Welcome to another episode of Corkout History. Where we drink Portuguese wine. And we talk about Portuguese history. Mostly the wine. My name is André. And I'm Inês. And welcome to Corkout History. And hello everyone! Here we are once again to bring you another Portuguese lady. Hi André, how are you today? Hi Inês, I'm good, how are you? Here we are once more uh, for another... Someone! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes! Uh, yeah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm ready to get right on with this. So tell me, what are we drinking today? So today we are drinking... Três bagos, Ooh. which would translate to something like three berries. Yeah, three berries. Yes, something okay. like that. Três bagos, it's a wine from the Douro region. So north of the country. Yeah, so from the north of the country. And I've never tried the red one. That's what we're having today. I've only tried the white one. It was actually my mother-in-law that introduced me to it. Uh, but I've never tried the red. So today we're going to try the red. And it's a 2016 one. So I hope it's good. Let's open the bottle. I'm sure it will rise to the challenge of the lady we are going to speak today. The standard is quite high, because today we're going to be talking about Gracia Mendes. So that's like, if you kind of English the name a little bit, that would be like, what, Gracia Mendes or something, if you want to <laughs> kind of visualize how you would write that, I guess. But um, yes. I, we are going to be referring to her as Gracia Perfect. Gracia it is then. And we are actually lucky this time, right? Because there's a lot of documents about her life, isn't there? Yeah, it's amazing because usually we are, you know, in our last episode, we weren't so lucky. We didn't have so much to base ourselves from. So this time, as we were saying, we're actually very lucky because she has a particularly well-documented life, hasn't she? And it's quite a life, which will allow us to marvel at the path that she makes for herself through very difficult time in Europe. We're going to be talking about a terribly racist and anti-Semitic setting of 16th century Europe. Yeah, those times were rough and um, we have a lot to cover, no doubt. So, so in order to make it through this rigged game, which was 16th century uh, Europe, she went for several different names during her life. So. Um, it can get a little bit confusing, but she went through the name of Gracia Mendes. Uh, she also went through the name of uh, Beatrice de Luna, so Beatrice uh, de Luna kind of thing, and Anna Nasi, and some other combination of these. Sometimes uh, things change a little bit around. We will do our best to keep track of this and uh, make it as clear as possible. Apart from all those names, she was also just known as La Senora. Right? Yeah, which just means like the lady. So she, this can hint a little bit maybe at how important and big she was. I mean, if you can be referred to as just the lady, 
That's a bit telling, isn't it? <laughs> so to dive right into her life, now that we know that she was going by many different names, we have to go a little bit back um, to 1492, and that's an infamous year in the Iberi Iberian Peninsula. An year that was forever marked as the year in which the Catholic monarchs Fernando and Isabella of Spain issued the decree that expelled the Jews from, uh, from Spain. That decree meant that all the Jewish populations inhabiting the lands would have to either face a forced conversion to Catholicism or they would need to leave everything behind and flee. There are many ways in which populations cope with this, from conversion to fleeing, as we were saying, and to just keep on doing, on, on professing their faith in a private setting while living publicly as Catholics, but we're going to get into that. Yeah, I think one of the good things that we, we will uh, have a chance to see through this lady in this episode is uh, a little bit into the lives of a 16th century uh, Jewish population and how all the different ways that people uh, coped with their situation yeah, and and the the impact was far and out and wide, and these measures had a profound impact in the country and its population. And of course, we can always think how different history we would be if that hadn't taken place. But anyway, yeah, scholars... it's one of those what ifs, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of those. Yeah, um, but scholars disagree on the numbers of people that fled the kingdom. And th these numbers vary from as few as 150,000 to a around 1 million. And probably the numbers are something in between these two. Um, although there's, there's a lot of the conversions as well to be counted in. So the, the impact on the overall population is um, difficult to count. Getting back to Our Lady, uh, her family, Gracia's parents, they decided to leave. They, they used to live in Spain and they decided to leave when this happened. And they moved to Portugal, which was the closest safe space that allowed them to be who they wanted to be. And Not for long. Yeah, but not for long. I mean, a few years later, uh, after they moved into Portugal, the Portuguese prince was meant to marry the Spanish princess. So... This happened quite a bit, like Portugal, Spain, like marry, 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 intermarry, you know, how um, royal families go. So when the Portuguese prince asked for the hands of the Spanish princess, his request was accepted. Everyone was happy for them to marry on the condition that Portugal would also follow suit and get rid of their Jewish population. So it's like, yeah, you can have the, the princess, but can you please get rid of them? I'm sad to say that the... Prince uh, accepted these terms and on the year of 1497, Portugal would follow into Spain's footsteps and make the world a worse place. So there was there were horrible things at the time. There was a forced conversion of children uh, from the Jewish families and there were, there were mass conversions. So these were obviously imposed and forced upon the Jewish population and obviously a very traumatic event. When we first think about a situation like this, we might think, you know, 
looking from our privileged situation, that converting would be the safest and most convenient solution if we ignore that these people were being forced to deny their beliefs and forced to worship a different god. So we might sometimes be tempted to think, well, you know, it's fine. You just say, yeah, I mean, the king is forcing this upon you. So yeah, you don't want to be killed. You don't want to be uh, moved to another country. Yeah, sure. I'll just go with a, with a different god. We can be tempted to think something like this. But actually, this was no solution at all. Like these people from then on, like the ones who chose to convert, who are like, okay, we won't follow the Jewish faith anymore. We are now Christians. We accept the Christian God. Please just let us be and let us live here and we are happy to go with your rules these were called new christians or conversos in the uh, in portuguese would be like conversos conversos or new christians and they would become the favorite prey of the inquisition that's another thing we're gonna dive into today so for those who don't know the inquisition was a religious police court kind of thing that goes around prosecuting and taking people to trial. I'm doing inverted commas here. Because it's like trial should be taken with a pinch of salt. Because we can hardly consider it a fair trial or a trial in any way. But yes, so they were taking these people to trial, let's say, for the most right uh, reasons and just, you know, just going to town on it. Yeah, I think you raised a, f a very important point because even these conversions, when we're talking at the time, the symbolic importance of faith and how people lived faith is not as near as we do in the West after the 19th century. So, like, the meaning of all this would be much, much... It would have much more depth to it than just, oh, let's convert and we're all good with that and it yeah. doesn't matter who we worship, like atheism is not on the table like no, the existence of no, god is no. not put into question as it is later on so this is pre all that to even consider denying the god they believe in the importance of your immortal soul is much more on the table like it's much it's ever present people we know like uh, medieval times weren't easy like people died more they had a completely different relationship with death than we have in today's world and obviously human beings will always try to stay alive right that's the thing but like to stay alive at what cost like mm -hmm. if you are damning your soul for and you really believe that if you're denying your god and damning your soul for like all eternity things are suddenly very different it has a completely different weight yeah and on top of that then you convert and you become this Cristo Novo or New Christian uh, that you were talking about and your life's still going to be horrible because you're still going to like you're still going to be like the group of people that the Inquisition will go after uh, and that will be on the spotlight of anything and so yeah like the options are not great no because th that's the thing it's like sometimes we might when we look at this with today's lenses before you actually consider everything at the time you might think oh just convert firstly just convert wasn't that easy and then it's like when you actually when they're actually like okay yeah fine we'll just convert 
And then it's like, oh, actually, um, <laughs> no, no, we're still not down with that. No, yeah. no, yeah. no, that doesn't work for us. <laughs> yeah. So and I think that like this um, Inquisition, and uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about, about it like extensively on this episode and maybe in some others, it's still in some shape or form in, in our collective imagination, so we have an idea about it and almost as a pop cultural reference. <laughs> yeah, because it's um, the Spanish Inquisition! <laughs> Shout out to Monty Python! Yes, we have a Monty so, Python fan yeah. in the house. And Well, uh, I think it's a reference for, for instance, uh, our British people uh, who might <laughs> be listening to us, like... <laughs> Who if knows? there's any. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So yeah, when we think of stuff like witch trials and pe people reporting on people and um, and on what people were doing, so that's we have an idea about it. Yeah, yeah. But of course, with that, like like with any systems of oppression and control, Inquisition was a force that could implement ways of being and ways of. And ways of living but of course it was used for far more than that like people would then use it for other stuff this takes me back i mean i'm gonna just do a, a small tangent here and do a, a little parallel for instance i i think what we see with the inquisition we actually see uh, a lot of times during history and one of the examples that comes to my mind is for instance in the roman times when we have um sulla um the dictator Sulla and his prescriptions, for instance. And I think with the um, Inquisition, exactly the same kind of thing is going to happen. So anytime there's a police that can control people's lives, it's used for much more yeah. than what it should be. Exactly. Well, it's never, it's not like, it's not like it should be used for anything, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it just goes that extra step. Usually these uh, systems, they rely a lot in uh, people uh, telling on other people, for instance. Anyone can report on anyone, regardless of what the people were actually doing. So imagine, you know, you have uh, a disagreement with someone. And I mean, we know there's always drama in life, right? So imagine, I don't know, your neighbor's goat keeps pooping in your yard. Like, just report on her. She's a witch! I mean, you're so... Yeah, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> Where am I? Your neighbor I mean... has more Instagram followers than you? She's a witch. <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah, you have anything. Again, there's this person you don't like very much. I mean, you just, you know, you have someone that you can report to. And she's a witch. And, you know... That's it. And here it's... Yeah. And now imagine and that you just converted and your family is constantly being watched and under suspicion of secretly secretly still being practicing Judaism, regardless of whether you're actually doing it or not, and permanently at the risk of being reported by someone. Yeah, because I, I want to say that um, even though Inquisition, like, I, I, we were talking about, like, she's a witch here... I, I, it wasn't so much about uh, witch hunting at this time. That's just what's in our popular imagination. But like uh, at this time, it was about a lot about um, are they all these new Christians being um, uh, accused of still practicing Judaism? So, I mean, you have anything against your neighbor, against anything, whatever it is you don't like, you just go like, hey, um, yeah. So I heard like they're actually still doing stuff in private and you know inquisition is all over them they get taken away they get um 
tortured, killed. Yeah, they, they get interrogated and I mean, <laughs> interrogated at this time means torture, means uh, every kind of ways to um, get the results that you want. Now imagine that money is involved and that your neighbor is actually a better jeweler, jeweler than you are. <laughs> exactly. Well, imagine there's like, you know, it's a business. It's like, oh, there's two cafes in the same street. Oh, hey, I heard they're doing Judaism in the back. <laughs> And there you go, and they're gone, basically. So obviously, this opens up to, you know, whenever there's, it's as you were saying, whenever there's this kind of policing and people can just report on anyone, um, it's a very effective way first to be uh, uh, complete control of the population and then to just be a, a terror rule. It's ironic, really, because by forcibly converting Jews and Muslims to Christianism, the Inquisition was attempting to build their dream of a purely Christian, purely Christian country and turning everyone into Christian Christians one way or another was meant to accomplish that dream. But like every dictatorial regime ever, then it doesn't end there then you need to ensure that they stay their way and paranoia ensues because, you know, those people don't actually want to be Christians. And then you start thinking, you know, oh, the country is crawling with crypto-Jews and fake Christians and that surely justifies the desperate means. And this rule of terror is the setting for Gracia's life. Just a side note, as we're not going to go into that right now, but of course, that the Inquisition was not only just um, persecuting Jews. There were a lot of other groups in society that were also being persecuted. It's the usual tale, as we know. Yeah, of course. Anything, all minorities, anything that, uh, that they have an excuse, really, to torment. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but this is the setting where baby Gracia was born, and she was born in 1510, some 20 years after her family had moved to Portugal from the kingdom of Aragon, uh, Ar 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 <laughs> from the kingdom of Aragon? 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 Aragon. <laughs> Gosh. In modern day Spain to escape these new laws. Um, her Christian name was Beatriz, Beatriz de Luna. So yeah, Beatrice, yeah. Beatriz de Luna. Gracia or Graça was the Portuguese translation of her Jewish original name of Hannah. What we see is that for most of her life, or when she had that option, she actually chose to use the translation of the Jewish name, because she was living in, you know, Portugal and Spain and stuff. So the translation of the Jewish name over her Beatrice de Luna. So in history, usually she's, she's regarded as Gra Gracia. Yes, and her family was extraordinarily wealthy and we can say extraordinarily <laughs> wealthy and this was the case for a few of the jewish families of course that didn't do them any favors in the eyes of the country i mean yeah but then again being poor never really helped anyone either right <laughs> right the truth is racism and bigotry will always prevail and use everything at their disposal to justify the hatred we hate them because they're rich and we hate them because they're poor. <laughs> very, very true, very true, Inish. And um, 
going back to her, her family had firstly focused on the precious stones business, and by the beginning of that century, they had expanded to banking activities, they were doing international transfers, dealing in commodities, accepting valuables for safekeeping, loaning money uh, to individuals, royalty, and governments. Yeah, that's how rich they were. They're lending money to royalty and governments. <laughs> yeah. And later on the 16th century, it's the same family that would hold the largest share of the spices trade and became even more influential as they would have control over the stock market in several countries. Yeah, so I don't know if it's really clear in everyone's minds uh, how important the spice um, trade was for Portugal in the 16th century. So Portugal at, in the 16th century was actually one of the leading powers in the world. Um, and this was all because and this was all basically basically uh, due to the not only the spices trade, but during, uh, due to the trade routes going on between Portugal and Asia, which just, well, Portugal, Africa, Asia, which just open the world and Portugal to um, an immense, an immense wealth. And I actually read that one of the things that her family was doing was as crazy. Okay, imagine the ships going, obviously going to from Portugal to India to stock up on these spices, right? And then bring them back to Europe and sell them and make a huge amount of profit on the way, right? Um, so, what? obviously, if you imagine 16th century and the rickety boats that they were in, so these were, these trips lasted months and they were extremely, you know, dangerous. There were the, the odds that something would go wrong were high, right? Like to understate it a bit. So uh, one of the things that they were doing, her family, was actually to insure the Portuguese government. Right, so, so they were in the insurance business. Yeah, so imagine how wealthy you have to be that you're insuring these ships to go to India and then come back and then that way allowed the crown to make business mm -hmm. it's just i don't think we can quite picture how well they were doing and this is just at the time that she was starting it will go beyond that as we're gonna say yeah and at 18 years old she married um another secret jew named francisco mendes francisco mendes yeah how would you we say it in English, like Francisco Mendes? Well, there or we go. There we go. That should be it. <laughs> who and he was a loaded businessman who was probably her uncle. That was the tradition with Jewish families in the 16th century, and so they had a baby girl called Reina. It might sound odd for our contemporary look to you know marry your uncle, but we have to understand that in very persecuted communities, you tend to try to keep to the ones you can trust so obviously marrying um new christians with 
old Christians, let's say, it was just not gonna happen. Because uh, neither, neither teams, let's say, <laughs> neither teams trust one another. So the old Christians don't want to be involved. And the new Christians, like, don't trust them with their lives. So you tend to, um, you know, much more keep to your community. And that uh, uh, we can see that through history, not just in here. So, Gracia and her husband and now her daughter were living in Lisbon and they did for a while even as things got increasingly difficult and things had started to become very difficult for the Jewish population even before Gracia was born. So it's not a new thing because even right before Gracia was born in uh, 1506 there was what we now know as the Lisbon Massacre. But what is that, Inej? Well, Lisbon Massacre has the name Hinsad. It's a massacre that took place in Lisbon. Uh, so I know, shocker, you can have guessed that. Um, this actually, like you were saying, it happened in 1506. Um, and it started on Easter Sunday. And it was actually a horrible, terrible event. Um, so 1506 is actually four years before Gracia was born. This would be such a terrible events that the you know the reach and the impact it would have on the population would just be forever felt so basically it was an absolute bloodshed where new christians were killed in the most horrific manners by a bloodthirsty mob so picture the worst you can and then some uh, so it all started in a church funny enough where people were praying for the end of the drought and plague that was ravishing the country um, when a man said he had just witnessed the face of Jesus Christ on the altar which you know everyone interpreted as a miracle right there and then I mean everyone but a man and this man was a new Christian or a converted Jew who said had just been a trick of the light which, I mean, between you and me, it does sound a lot more plausible, but no, the crowd was having none of that. And they dragged him outside, beat him, beat him to death and burnt his body at the stake in the main square nearby. And with this, hell was unleashed and... Jesus Christ. Yeah, don't bring Jesus into this. He started... <laughs> no, no, Jesus. <laughs> don't bring... <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think he started. I don't think he'd ever wanted it, actually. But anyway, that's another topic. So with this, I mean, hell was then unleashed. The new Christians became scapegoats for the plague, famine and drought. And the mob composed of locals and foreign sailors. Because, you know, as we mentioned, like Lisbon was um, a big port and it was all about trade and ships and stuff at the time. So uh, a mob of locals and foreign sailors just started to complete hunt down these new Christians motivated by these two priests telling them that they would be absolved of the sins of the last 100 days if they killed conversos. Tragically, on that Sunday, more than 500 people were killed and burned at the stake. The king and the court, they weren't in Lisbon. Um, which was often the case, but especially because of the plague, as we were mentioning before. Um, and when word reached them that the city forces were incapable of keep the order, they sent the magistrates to 
try and rein it in, but I mean, it was far gone by then. The Monday next day was even worse, it was just way more violent. It is ex estimated that around a thousand people died on that day. And I mean, you can just picture the most horrific ways, right? I mean, people were dragged from their houses, ripped to pieces, as in dismembered in the streets, thrown against the walls and burned at the stake, both dead and alive. So it's just, just picture hell on earth and that's what you get here yeah. looting was rampant of course as it is in these things like pillaging for valuables started it was just again hell on earth finally on tuesday the royal guard arrived and order you know started slowly uh, being imposed and conquered and the sailors ran off with their loot in their boats and members of the mord of the mob were then sentenced and the treasonous priests stripped of their powers and burned at the stake as well and by tuesday the records show that uh, more than 1900 had died i mean 2000 people basically died in this massacre um yeah and if you go to lisbon nowadays you'll find a memorial actually in the place where it all started so right in front of the sao domingos church there's a church in Rusio. Rusio is still the main square in lisbon and um, there's a church there that's where it all started and in front of it now you have a memorial for the the lives lost in that day and in all the other hardships that the jewish community had to face throughout the centuries yeah it's just because as we know it didn't end there but i mean yeah this is one of the because it happened, it's curious, isn't it, to, to see how long this nonsense has been going on for. I mean, I guess it's what we were talking about, like bigotry and, you know, racism and just there's always a way to go through with it. But yeah. So this is also the moment when Dom Manuel, the king, would decide to remove part of the title of the city of Lisbon after the massacre. So previously, Lisbon would be referred to as the muy nobre ilial cidade, which means the most, the, the very noble and loyal city of Lisbon. And Dom Manuel decides to remove that part of the title of the city to somehow mark this massacre. And a few years from then, Gracia's family is growing and they decide to move on. And they're now planning a new base in Antwerp. And this is modern day Belgium. And it was at the moment, at the time, part of the Spanish Empire, although it was um, the Inquisition was not acting there. And it became a safe ha haven for many of the Jewish families. They were also, many of them were also involved in this trade um, that, that we were talking about before. So that big, the space, the space trade and uh, space. the space trade. <laughs> <laughs> so they were involved in, the, <laughs> so they were involved in space trade. First astronauts right here. <laughs> um, planning to take the moon. And uh, no, but they were on the spice trade. Uh, spice trade, which yes, was, not space. Uh, 
people you <laughs> don't go saying that we are talking about um 16th century space trade from antwerp <laughs> so as i was saying they were organizing they were part of this uh, spice trade uh and Francisco, the husband, had started these preparations in face of the changes lived in Portugal, with the massacre, with Inquisition, but he would actually die in 1536 before seeing them through and leaving Gracia, just 26 years old, and a widow with a five-year-old daughter to fend for. The family then sent Diogo, that, that was the younger brother of Francisco, so Gracia's brother-in-law um, to Antwerp to start the preparation, set up the family business and he didn't disappoint on, in doing that. Uh, he did amazingly well and he became the new star of the pepper trade. Uh, he created a multinational business as we would call it today uh, compared to modern yeah. companies they were dealing with huge volumes pursuing multiple lines of business different countries with permanent branches everywhere so they were things were looking up for them yeah yeah i think we we really need to think of them as like a um a modern company almost because they had all these different lines they were doing banking and they were doing the spices trade and they were, do they were doing insurance and they were doing like other trades as well and it's just they were all over the place all over europe all you know and at this point the world is becoming global so they were yeah at the forefront of i that. think it's yeah. good yeah, yeah yeah now i'm not sure that all our listeners are aware of how important and huge the spices trade was in the 16th century like spices were the thing I'm not sure what would be comparable in today's terms. Uh, oil? Yeah, p possibly. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. That sounds sounds like it might be a thing. Uh, anyway, I know it might seem so bizarre these days. It goes by pennies at the supermarket. But I mean, back then, boy, it was gold. It was gold. It was cash money. I mean, now, this was absolutely wonderful news for Portugal who at the turn of the century found the sea route directly to India, which meant that they could now hop on a ship in Portugal, go all around Africa and get to India, get all them spices back to Portugal. I don't think I can overstate how revolutionary this was, right? I mean... Yeah, to get stuff from Asia all the way back to Portugal without having to go through land, through Asia, through the Mediterranean Sea and, and just find a way by sea, a route by sea that would go directly from Portugal to India would make things much easier and with a lot of less hands involved. So it was a way of capturing that, that, that commerce. Yeah, because I mean, there were some like routes through land and stuff before, but this meant that like Italy was the one who, you know, since uh, antiquity had been profiting most from this. And right now, Portugal suddenly came into the game because no one needed the root land anymore. There was like a, a sea route and Portugal was the one at the front of it. Now, I know getting on a boat and taking five years going and coming back to India through, you know, unknown seas might not seem like the most convenient way to get, hand, to get the hands on some spices. 
it's not like well but it's not like the other way was super fast either so actually no it it kind of depends on what you're comparing it to if you're comparing it to flying a plane for one hour to get somewhere (laughs) like it's a bit different but that's not the point of comparison for these things back then yeah exactly so even though you know this was a law it still needed a lot of investment it was groundbreaking and it changed the european root structures like forever Money changed hands, new market hubs, routes popped up all over the places. The power dynamics in Europe completely shifted. Now, out of all the spices, pepper was the king and queen. It was the top prime commodity and the Portuguese crown had its monopoly. And the Mendes family was controlling the pepper trade in the low countries. So that's the top level that these people are playing at yeah and playing at this level comes with a lot of risks doesn't it it always does and the brother-in-law of gracia was actually twice arrested accused of heresy yeah i mean people are going to try to take you down if you're that target everyone's going to be shooting for you and although he was accused twice both the portuguese crown and the Emperor Charles V and many, many consuls and magistrates came forward in support of, uh, of the brother-in-law and he was released both times and the case against him dropped because, of course, all these people also had interests in the relations with him and in the, the routes that they controlled. So, yeah. Uh, Money makes the world go round. <laughs> yeah, it does. So after the death of Francisco, uh, Gracia's husband, they are going to leave Portugal. And who is they? They is Gracia with her baby daughter. Well, not so baby anymore, but with her daughter. And uh, Gracia's sister, uh, possibly two nephews. Um, one of which is going to be huge in the business. We are not sure, like the records are not very clear if uh, the nephews travel with them at the same time from this time in Portugal. But anyway, they're going to be with them later on and they're going to be, one of them is going to be quite uh, big for the family. Yeah, and we have records of the safe passages arranged by Diogo from Antwerp for these three women. Gracia arrives in Antwerp and she's now a widow, as we said, and she immediately jumps on to the family business with her brother-in-law, who clearly uh, acknowledged her business talents and was happy to work with her as a partner. Apparently, she already had some experience and she might even be um, managing the business in Portugal along with her husband, probably while he was sick before dying. So she knew what she was doing. That's going to become very, very clear very soon. Like, she knew what she was doing. All right. Usually, according to uh, Jewish tradition, it would be sort of expected for Gracia to marry Diogo after becoming a widow from his brother. Might sound weird, but again, this was common practice in rich converso families as an attempt to keep the wealth and bloodline together. However, in this case, that's not going to happen. So Diogo is going to marry Gracia's younger sister, Brienda, instead. I mean, we're still keeping it in the family, don't get me wrong, but, you know, she's not going to have to marry the brother. 
which might hint a little bit at her taking a step into, you know, standing on her own. We are going to see more of that, but I think this is the first hint we get of that. Brianda and Diogo uh, would have one daughter, which they named uh, Beatrice or Gracia in reference to Gracia, so has a proof of their devotion. So this is the year of 1540, and in that same year, the Emperor Charles V decided to follow the trend and dabble in some anti-Semitism. I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> ordering that all Jews, friends of, friends, of, friends of Jews and people dealing with Jews in Antwerp were to be investiga investigated. This was a highway to blackmail these communities and sure a way to get some money into his banks at the expense of the threatened Jewish families. Once again, the family is, is in danger because um, they can never rest. Uh, yeah, that's going to be... We're going to see that. All the like, time. That's going to be the... Yeah, so yeah. they again need to relocate. And again... In the midst of all this, Diogo dies. So we see. <laughs> I mean, the men are falling like flies, baby. <laughs> yeah, the same, the same pattern right here. And this is two years after, so in 1542. And in his will, he would state that half the family fortune belonged to Gracia, and the other half to his wife and daughter. However, even that was to be administered by Gracia again. We see the importance of Gracia and how she was being given full responsibility for everything at this point. Yeah. And I mean, Brianda, I mean, understandably, she was not happy about this decision. And this would become a major issue between the two sisters, like we're going to see. I mean, come on. Your husband leaves you, all right, half the fortune of the family, but then says your sister is going to be the one to manage it. I, I not cool, be bro. Happy not either, cool, to be not fair. cool, but no, I'm sure Gracie cool. was happy. Yeah, and I'm sure he did have his reasons, right? Like, I'm not saying it wasn't the right decision, but I wouldn't be happy about it either. Drama, drama, drama. So now we have Gracia has the big boss of all these fortune, all this family fortune, pepper trade, banking, insurance, like multinational companies, like going all around the world, and she's at the top of it. And although we haven't had the chance to dive into Gracias yet, because we had to set the stage for all of uh, what's coming next for her, now that she's moving to Antwerp is the time for us to take a break. And if you want to discover what happens to her there, uh, you'll have to stick around and join us in the next episode. Well, we'll t tell you more about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, guys, but Gracia is so huge and the, the context that she's living in is just so... Oh, we can't just, you know, fly over everything and um, ignore all these things. We, we really think she deserves a longer, a bit of a time to shine. And in this one, we're going to be splitting into different episodes because there's just too much to yep, go over. So stick with us and uh, find what happened to Gracia on the next episode and this is where we'll stop for now stick with us and join us in the next episode of Corkout History in two weeks until then you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod 
and on Twitter at Corkout History, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts, and discover more about the upcoming episodes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Your comments are crucial so that more people can find us. Bye! Bye. <laughs>